Uh, my name is Ken Long. I'm from the Lawrence uh, Free State Church. Uh, I've had really the privilege and the honor of getting to know a lot of you, but not everybody yet. Uh, I was invited in to be able to help out with the uh, changes and the transition in the congregation here. Uh, if you want to hear my story uh, that relates to some of this, please uh, grab me and I'll be happy to share with you. But uh, let me share this with you. You know, uh, Willie O'Quinn and Katie, his wife, lead the church in Lawrence. We have campus ministry that uh, is growing uh, amazingly. We even have a retired ministry. They're trying to figure out whether to call us the, the gold ministry, the silver-haired ministry, the platinum ministry, or just the old people. But we, ha we have a Bible talk on uh, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 at the uh, Dillon's Grocery Store because they have kind of a sitting eatery type area there. Uh, where the old guys get together that are retired. And it's been so amazing to me because, you know, when you retire, you don't just sit around. You cer certainly don't retire from being a Christian. Right. And it's just been so interesting because um, we're retired. We have the time. We, we can reach out to people, and we know who, who to reach out to because they have gray hair. Yeah. And, and, well, not that's right, not always. But people are, are looking. Uh, and they, I don't want to get into that too far, but just, uh, it was amazing to me. I was in a, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but I was at a Home Depot. I went in to, re to rent a tool, and there was an older man that was working there, and he uh, was waiting on somebody and trying to, you know, get their stuff taken care of, and they had lots of questions, and they were kind of contradictory with him. And afterwards, he just apologized to me, and I said, no problem. And that turned into I eventually decided I need to reach out to him, and then I decided he's clearly not open. And it's late, it's time for the store to close, and, you know, he surely doesn't have the time. And something just compelled me that I needed to say, what do you do with your free time? I asked him how much he worked there, and he goes, well, a couple of days, I'm retired. I said, really? <laughs> and I asked him if he went to a church, and he goes, well, you know, I've tried church, but I just, they're so clicky. I try to, I try to go, and I try to fit in, but he said, they just don't seem very interested in uh, me being a part of things. And I said... Oh, really? <laughs> so to make a long story short, he started coming to this men's group on Saturday, Tuesday mornings, and has come every week. And he is experiencing exactly the opposite. He's seeing the love of God in his church and a bunch of white-haired guys sitting down and talking about the Bible together. Anyway, that's just a word of encouragement and a word of uh, uh, confession of my faithlessness because I, I had already written him off. He's clearly not open. And God said, you're just really not very astute, Ken. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> the church in Lawrence has as, as its theme, small church, big family. That's something that you guys might consider as a theme for your congregation or something thereof is it, you're not a huge church. We weren't a huge church. When I started there leading the church, there were 55 people. God's done some amazing things, uh, and I'm not going to take the credit for it because I moved away and I uh, just came back in the last two years, but it went from 55 to 150 in 10 years. And you want to know what the, the secret was? Relationships with one another and preaching the word the way it's written. And, you know, one at a time, people started turning themselves in. I want you to dream. Just dream. Once you dream, then you can start to scheme on how you're going to accomplish the things that God wants us to do right here in Wichita. Amen. 
I used to say little bitty liberal Lawrence, Kansas. Well, Wichita's bigger. It's probably not as liberal. Think about the great things that can happen. Anyway, uh, Lawrence has also chosen to be uh, what is called a training and ascending church. They have the vision that rather than holding on and becoming 200 or 300 people, the goal is to train people so that they can go someplace else and be a blessing to the church where they go. Uh, Tim's uh, group up in Omaha has the vision of uh, planting a church in Lincoln, Nebraska. I don't know if you shared that yet. But how's that going to happen if we don't send people? We can't just say find a couple, usually a young couple that we can afford to to pay to go. We can't just say go be warm and well-fed. Good luck. We'll watch. Why don't we start dreaming about being some of those people who are trained and sent? And I was talking to one of the uh, Platinum Ministry guys. He's retired, and he was just restored a year ago. And I mentioned that idea to him, and he didn't say, oh, yeah, I'm too old, I'm retired, I'm enjoying my retirement, went on and on. He just listened, and he, he, he concluded, maybe I ought to be one of those guys who goes to help establish a church. Yeah. 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 I thought, is my water right there? Just sorry. I can hardly talk. Thank you. <coughs> okay. Um, Tim will be preaching next week. I'll be back in two weeks. And I want to give you uh, something that I'd really like to ask you to study on your own. Uh, I normally do a, a text study, which I'm going to do today. But the one I do in two weeks is entitled Intentionally Different. And the concept that I'm going to go from is the word holy or holiness. But I, w- I would urge you to start studying on your own the word holy. So when you come, I'm not needing to convince you, but you're able to go, yeah, I got it. Okay, you with me? Okay, let's get into today's message. Um, The theme that we are trying to focus on right now in this congregation is unity. If we put into practice what I hope to share with you today, I believe that we will see unity grow. Um, I have hope. I'm having trouble with my notes, so bear with me. Uh, My hope is that this message will not just be a reminder of things that most of you already know, but that it will be something that will be firm and gentle at the same time, that will help uh, you be reminded and to stimulate you to take action on the things you already know. I want you to think about it this way. When we think about church, we can think about the church, we can think about them, we can think about a building, we can think about Sunday morning worship, but really what the Bible thinks about is the collection of the people who have been called out, who are holy, who have that in common, and as they grow in their holiness, they begin to have everything in common. With that, the idea I want to go after is that who we are as individuals and who we are collectively will determine the culture, the flavor, I call it of the congregation. Individually, whether you believe it or not, you have an influence on the culture of this church. The question that I'm not going to answer in detail today, but a question to ask ourselves is, what culture does God want for this congregation? And don't be one who watches, be one who who helps become or create the culture that God has in mind. So our individual and our collective uh, choices behaviors and attitudes create the culture 
of what we call church. Each of us makes a difference. The question is, what difference do you make? Yeah. Title of my message today is back to what is most basic. Turn your Bibles to, well, let me just read you a couple of scriptures for the sake of time. Reference 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. <clears throat> the Apostle John is writing and he says, Whoever claims to live in him, that is in Jesus, must live, some translations say walk, as Jesus did. I remember when I first read that scripture, I was just kind of shaken to the core. But think about it. What was he saying? He says, we, if we claim to be a Christian, the call that we've answered is to be like Christ. It's to not know about him or agree with him or, or try to, to be a little bit like him, but it's to walk like Jesus did. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, follow God's example. Other places it talks about, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's another place where Paul says, I'm going to send you Timothy so that you can imitate me. Do you see what was going on there? Timothy was learning godliness and to be more like Jesus through a man who's striving to be more like Jesus. And as Timothy strove to be more like Paul, who's more like Jesus, he was sent to someplace else to help them become more like Jesus. Because anyone, that would be you, anyone and me who claims to be a follower of Christ must follow Christ. Yeah. And what it says is we must live as he did. We are to follow the example of God. Isn't it good that we have an example in human form instead of having to guess or come up with our own philosophical ideas of God? Right. All we really have to do is look into the four Gospels and see who Jesus is. Right. And then we know who we are following. Not who, I'm going to say it again. Not who we're agreeing with. But we're following him because we agree with him. Because we see that he was more than just a teacher. But that we see that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. We are to be like Jesus. The idea begins to go all over the place with this idea that we, he said, are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We make a difference. He says that he was the light of the world. See, God has called us not to just be good people and not to just be sincere people and not just to be agreeers, but to be beers, that we be what we say we believe. Are you with me so far? Turn to John chapter 7, and this is going to be our text for the morning. At the very end of chapter 7, in verse 53, it says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went out to the Mount of, of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You just try to put yourself in that situation. That'd be a little tense, wouldn't it? It'd probably bring out our sinful nature just a little bit. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground. 
with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Wouldn't it be great to know what he wrote? (laughs) It might have said, take a deep breath. (laughs) Get your perspective. Point is, we don't really know what he wrote, so it must not have been that important. He didn't. It's not written here. But what we see is he didn't react. He 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 contained himself first. He had the self-control in a situation that would typically make us feel pretty much out of control. I was leading a Bible discussion at the University of Florida a long time ago, before I got married, and I, I was getting into it. And as I got into it, a guy in the crowd. In the group, it, it was a, a dorm room, and the room was literally completely full. All there was was enough space to walk in and out. People were on the bunk beds, etc. And I was going after it, and I, I'm into it. The guy interrupts me, and he asked some question to put me on the spot. And everybody's looking at me like, what's he going to say? And I'm just beginning to shake. My Bible, the pages are turning on their own because <laughs> I was feeling so uncomfortable. And luckily, a brother was calm. He must have written in the dirt. And he spoke up and said, listen, this is for people who want to hear the Bible, not for people who are trying to to make trouble. So if that's not what you want, you need to leave. That was my first example of a human being, guy in grad school, of what this text talks about. Now, frankly, this is a little side point, but I really needed that brother because I needed to collect myself. (laughs) But that was how I was responding rather than the way that Jesus did respond. It says... um, he stopped down, I stooped down and wrote on the ground again. At this, those who began, uh, let's see, it says, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now my point is is that if we are to be followers of Jesus, that we are to emulate the life of Christ, let's just look at one example here. This is a story that's really easy, and I've heard it taught this way, is to get caught up in uh, all the people that are involved here. It talks about the Pharisees, Talks about how my pages are out of order. Uh, years ago, I had a I had an open heart surgery, and the, the byproduct of that afterwards, I'm just going to put it out there, was I noticed I couldn't remember how to drive to work. And I couldn't remember conversations I had with people. I'd go halfway through it and go, oh, we already talked about this, haven't we? And they'd very kindly just nod their head. Now, the reason I'm saying that I'm kind of a broken man, but I have to use notes or I will just completely forget what it is I want to say. So, so bear with me here. I found my spot. You know, we can look at uh, how critical and self-righteous and self-preserving the Pharisees were. We can look at how guilty or humiliated the adulterer was. Or we can certainly ask the question, why didn't they bring her partner? But what I want us to do today, if you haven't caught on, is I want to look at Jesus instead and how he handled the tough situation. 
As we go through this time together, I want you to examine how you can apply Jesus' example to your relationships in this congregation. When we intentionally do this, what happens? Well, when we do this, amazing things will happen. Lives will be changed. Relationships will be improved. We'll go deeper. We'll become stronger. We'll become more like Jesus. We'll be involved. We'll be a great support to one another. Now, maybe, you know, of course, I don't know because I'm kind of a newcomer to uh, things here. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but we're already doing those things. We're not quite like Jesus yet, so take on the attitude of how can we do it more. Now, you know how it is in life. In this particular case, the Pharisees were pointing the finger at the woman, and they were really pointing the finger at Jesus and saying, what are you going to do here? In our relationships, sometimes we point the finger at what someone else among us is doing, and they point the finger right back, and now we've got problems. Uh, there's a man, I think it was Jerry Jones years ago, he was... Uh, he had come into our family of churches and became a great preacher. I don't know what he was talking about, but it was something along this line about pointing the finger. And it's corny, but he goes, in his old southern twang, he goes, when you point the finger, three of them are pointing back at you. Yeah. And that's really the point in the teaching that Jesus had in this text. But I want us to still look at the personality and the, the example of Jesus. The point was, you start with yourself. Instead of starting with pointing the finger. One thing, we have more credibility when we start with ourselves. Another thing, Jesus just said, do it. In John chapter, and I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, he says, don't judge or you'll be judged. That doesn't say turn a blind eye to things, because the next thing he says is, first, take the plank out of your own eye so that you won't have the plank in your eye. No, he says, take the plank out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's the point? You start with yourself so that you can help other people. What's the point for us? That should be an element of what our fellowship is about. We start with ourselves, but we don't stop with ourselves. And this is what Jesus did, man. He didn't have the plank in his eye, but he didn't just stop with, uh, well, this is a tough situation. I'll walk away from it. He engaged in it. What's the first thing we see that we can be like? Jesus viewed a difficult, tense situation as an opportunity. Well, let's just, you know, let's don't beat around it. This congregation has had some tense, difficult circumstances over the last few months and really over the last several years. Now, how did Jesus respond? He didn't run from it, and he didn't get an attitude about it. He got involved. He embraced the situation, and what I love, and this is the challenge for us, is to see difficult as an opportunity. When I've gone through difficult things in my life and in looking at my own character and some of the conflict that I've had to endure in my lifetime, it's sometimes overwhelming. But I have to start by looking at myself and rather than running from it, to engage in it. When we don't, it just really never quite goes away. The situation may go away, but the situation pretty much stays the same. So the first thing we see is that Jesus 
viewed difficulty as an opportunity. He didn't run from it. He didn't get irritated. He didn't get defensive. He leaned into it to make a difference. Number two, what else do you see about the way he interacted with the Pharisees? Well, he didn't treat them the way they deserved to be treated. They were self-righteous, and they were trying to, to trap him. But rather than going into that, what we see is that he said the right thing the right way. Now, how many of you ever said it shouldn't matter how you say things as long as it's the truth? Anybody besides me? That is a lie. Read through the book of Proverbs, and there's so many verses that talk about how we engage with one another. I didn't write them all down, but one of them says an offended man is like a fortified city, more unyielding than a citadel. What does that mean? If he had offended them, they wouldn't have listened. They would have just got defensive. There's another one that says a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Our gentleness can be very powerful. Another one that says uh, he who has gracious lips will have the king as a friend. What does that mean? When we say things in a kind way, people are more likely to hear what we have to say. And we can influence people in high places if we just look at ourselves and how we deliver things, which means we look at the other person and how they need it so that they can hear it instead of talking to the wall because we're just talking without the, the gentleness. But what do we see? Jesus wasn't just this holding a lamb type of guy with some placid look on his face. Jesus was also very firm with them. So what we see is that he was balanced. So the way I like to put it is he was firm but gentle. He was clear. They all got it. But he was kind about it. Yeah. Now, if we're only clear and firm, we're not just like Jesus. We're only partly like him. We're out of balance. And if we're only kind and gentle, we're only partly like Jesus, not completely like Jesus. And I would suggest that each of these are not very effective when they're alone. But I would suggest that when we put firm and gentle, clear and kind together, you get something powerful. Now, we're not talking third person, okay? We're not talking about, yeah, them or the church at large. We're talking about what the culture in this congregation can be like. Being able to engage, lean into things instead of lean away or avoid them. To be firm but gentle, to be clear but kind, to see a difficult situation as an opportunity. You know, I want to give you an example. In 2, Kings, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, you can read it on your own, but chapter uh, 12, verse 1 through 25, it talks about David committing adultery. It talks about how he tried to manage it, and it comes around to this guy named Nathan who goes and tells him a story, which I won't go into. You can read it on your own. But when David heard the story about the injustice, he burned inside and said, this man, something to the effect of, deserves to be put to death. And Nathan simply says, you're that man. Now, how do you think he said it? <laughs> you hypocrite! <laughs> you're that man! Maybe, but I doubt it. I don't, I don't know Hebrew well enough to, I don't know Hebrew hardly at all. But I, I don't know the tone in which it was said, but I do know the flavor of people and how we receive things. I think what I picture is after David gets the conviction towards someone else, and Nathan applies it to him, he was able to say it in a kind, gracious, but firm and clear way. And all he said was, David, you're that man. What was the result? David was broken. Man, there was a change that took place in him. Now, the ex I want to give you a personal example. Um, 
I'll, I'll just put it out there. When, when we got out of the ministry, we, we moved to Kansas City. Uh, Willie and Katie O'Quinn uh, took over leading the church. Due to the circumstances that led to that, I was kind of a broken person, so was my wife. We were just, I'll just leave it at that for now. We were, we were broken. Uh, my quiet times were times of, God, you already know, I just need you to help me in this. Because I, I just couldn't get where I needed to be. And I remember one day, uh, while we had moved to Kansas City, and I got this phone call from Willie. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I haven't heard from Willie in quite a while. And this is a guy that was kind of my son in the faith. You know, a little critical. And uh, as we talked, it started out with casual. And he goes, Ken, I want you to move back to Lawrence. You know, my automatic thought was, why would I do that? I've already been rejected once. That wasn't by the whole congregation. It was by a few. But the rest of his comment was, I need someone to help me mature the church. Would you move back and help me? And what was in my mind was, I really want to do this, but I don't know. After I prayed, thought about it, got advice about it, it just made sense to go. But all that leads up to, I have self-doubts, and I, I have had times where I just feel broken again. And like, I just, I just don't have anything to offer. Who am I trying to fool? And I was talking to my wife and Stephen Pam Major. I can picture, you know how that is? You can picture where you're at. Yeah. We're around our round table, and it's just a little bit bigger than this. And I'm just kind of talking about how broken I feel and discouraged I am. And Steve kind of sits back in his chair, and then he leans forward, and he goes, I think I know what your problem is. And I leaned away. <laughs> and this was looking at me like, what are you going to do? <laughs> are you, are you going to listen? And I'm going, oh, I don't know if I can take it. And I said, okay, what is my problem? And he goes, you just don't listen. Now, I've been a professional counselor where people pay me to listen for over 25 years. <laughs> You can imagine the kind of things that went through my mind. Yeah. And now I was at a, at a moment of change. I could choose to listen to what he has to say and inquire, or I could stay the way I was, and I was stuck. So I leaned forward, and I said, help me see. <laughs> because I, I think I'm a pretty good listener. People even tell me I'm a good listener. And he goes, well, Willie asked you to move to Lawrence to help the church. And people, and I don't know what else, but he gave evidence that maybe I had something to offer. That was a turning point in my life. Have I completely changed? No. But it is on my radar to think a different way. And my point is this. I'm glad that I had a Nathan in my life. I did not enjoy that conversation. But the brother loved me enough to say the right thing the right way. And that was an opportunity for me, not for conflict, but an opportunity for me to be a transformed person, yeah. depending on what I would do with it. Are you with me? Yeah. I, I don't want to get lost in my stories too much because I could go on and on. But what we see here is, number one, like we said, or obstacles and difficulty equal opportunities. Jesus had the ability to be firm but gentle, clear but kind. My example is I had someone who did that for me. And I'm a better man because I was uh, willing and someone was willing to speak into my life. Because wow. frankly, I was just stuck. 
do you have people that speak into your life on more than a casual basis? The Chiefs are playing today. It's great to talk about that. I heard another miracle took place. KU won yesterday. <laughs> I, is it five in a row now? Mark, is it five? I graduated from MU, so that is a miracle. <laughs> See, we need the example of Jesus, not the rationalizations of how people are. I'll say it again. Do you have people to speak into your life? Do you listen? Do you, don't just be the recipient all the time. That makes for a really weak Christian. Do you speak into other people's lives to make a difference? Now, some of you may go, well, who am I? I've only been a Christian a short time. Well, then you're the one to do it. Uh, if you say, well, I, you know, I'm introverted, then be more like Jesus. I get it. I'm introverted by nature, believe it or not. Uh, but the point is not to be who we are and believe in Jesus. It's to be like Jesus because we believe. Um, what else do we see about him? We see that Jesus was forgiving. After he had talked into the hearts of the Pharisees with one sentence, he then looked at the woman and he goes, where are your accusers? And she goes, they've all gone away. He goes, then neither do I condemn you. So what do we see here? Sometimes we want justice. And what was justice? To, <laughs> to rail on the Pharisees and to condemn her. That's an easy-to-defend perspective. But the example is Jesus showed mercy. First to the Pharisees and then to the woman. Now, which one of them deserved it? None of them deserved it. By definition, forgiveness is recognizing that someone is guilty and acquitting them. Wow. It's not recognizing that they've changed because forgiveness is on us. It's not on the other person. Now, I know there's those verses that say if your brother repents, forgive him, but those aren't the only verses in there. That, those are really good ones, though. But some of the time, we have to take the ownership for will we forgive whether the other person repents or not. So here I was. I was stuck with this conflict that had taken place. I was being falsely accused of several things that were really, really tender to my heart. Uh, after the fact, I started getting these text messages that were just, they were uh, venomous in them and touching all the spots where this particular person knew I was the most vulnerable. And I looked at it and I don't want to forgive them. I don't deserve forgiveness. But it never says forgive a person if they deserve it. Wow. And like I said, I'm going to say it again. By definition, forgiveness is acquitting someone when they don't deserve it. That's on us, not on the other person. Now, what happens? I've also heard it said, I'm on a tangent off my notes, but it's been said that bitterness is the only poison that a person drinks and expects someone else to die. <laughs> Bitterness is the only poison that someone drinks and expects someone else to die. It's almost like our attitude can punish somebody else. But who does it punish the most? And this is what I believe about God commanding us to forgive. I don't think it's a test. 
I don't think it's because the narrow door is narrow that he wants it to make it so narrow that we can't come in because we have a hard time with forgiveness. I believe that everything that God commands us to do is for our good. Because yeah, who's the greatest winner? Who's the greatest uh, gr- uh, blessing recipient when there's forgiveness? It's the person who forgives because it's to acquit. It's to let go of it. Is a person still guilty? Yeah, but don't hold on to it. It's about you and God. It's between me and God. And I remember some of my times, I shared this with some of you, so pardon my redundance, but there'd be times in my quiet times I would just sit there and go, I've already told you what's going on with me. I can't do this. I can't do this forgiveness thing without your help. And the next day I come in, probably, I don't know what day it was, but I go, God, I'm still stuck. I got nothing. And that was my quiet time. I just sat there with nothing. But I will say this. That was the beginning of me having to wrestle with me instead of pointing the finger. I believe that when difficult times come, uh, I think Lana and I were talking about kind of a spontaneous conversation with someone else that difficulties develop who we are. So what do we do? I'll, I'll preach on this in a month probably, but when difficulty comes, we try to avoid it. So what we ought to do is lean into it so that we can be better and feel better. All right, let me keep moving. Jesus was forgiving, Colossians uh, 3, verse 13, and also almost verbatim in Ephesians 4, 32. It says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Don't you sometimes just hate that verse? (laughs) But this is God's love being expressed to us. Do the right, the bigger thing so that you also can be healed. Now, how were we forgiven? It says, forgive as you have been forgiven. We've been forgiven when we're guilty. I'll move on. What else do we see about Jesus? Jesus was expectant. He said, go leave your life of sin notice what he didn't say he didn't say well I get it nobody's perfect you just blew it what he does is he takes the woman where she's at to take her someplace else that she hasn't been and he goes basically you need to stop sinning but he's what he's doing is he's calling her to repent have you ever tried to I'll hit this in the future too but have you ever tried to not sin and found yourself worse I won't picture an elephant. I won't picture an elephant. All you see is elephants. I've had to struggle, and I still struggle right now. It's gotten better. But in the last month, I have struggled with just irritability and criticalness. It's the poison that I drink and expect everybody else to die. Uh, but I, I've struggled with it. And I, in my prayers, God, help me not be so critical. And one day it just occurred to me, I teach everybody else this, repentance is not abstinence. Repentance is replacement. So Luke 6, and I think part of what Tim covered last week, says love your enemies. He doesn't say just stop hating your enemies. He says love them. Bless those who persecute you. And really what I think was included in this idea, at least it is for us, is that repentance is not abstinence from what we're doing that's sinful. It's replacement. And that's one of the... the uh, medicines that we can drink that will heal us and other people. 
Are you with me yet? These are examples of the life of Jesus and the man that we have chosen to follow, the man that we call the Christ and our Lord. These are the things that God expects us to do, not to just admire. These are who we are to be, not just to agree. Now, what happens in the family of God when we don't view view, uh, obstacles as opportunities, uh, when we don't Uh, uh, treat one another with firmness and gentleness, balance, uh, when we aren't forgiving and we really don't have any expectations of ourselves or other people. What happens in the church when that happens? The answer is not much. What happens when we don't emulate Christ? We're going to have superficial relationships. What happens when we fail to be like Jesus? One of God's very goals doesn't happen, and that's to mature one another. If we're the same people today as we were a year ago, I'd even say maybe a month ago, we need to stop and think, what can we do differently so that we can be transformed people? And believe it or not, part of God's plan is using a bunch of imperfect people. That's us. Maintenance is not enough. Transformation is what God has in mind for his church. The choice is, the choice to follow Jesus includes the choice to do relationships his way. The choice to follow Jesus is the choice to live like him. When we see that we really aren't, we need to repent. I guess we could add to it, although I want to drive it home to individuals. When we see that other people aren't repenting, we need to find a firm but gentle, kind but clear way to help them repent and not just say, well, who am I to say anything? Here's an application. I want to bring it on home to where I started. The application is to our relationships with each other that we create family. Now, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have a family that has no problems at all? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we are unified. We have that in common. (laughs) Why in the world? You know, think about it. Why would he use the metaphor that the church is the family of God, that the saints are family? Uh, Well, (laughs) certainly it's that we come together as a group, but family is an interesting uh, illustration of the imperfection. You know, in our family, we've had conflicts. Uh, when I hold on to it, I get bitter and resentful. And that's part of what's happened with me. I can get married to my those things, or I can be married to my wife and to the Lord and have those things go away. All right, let me try to bring this airplane onto the runway. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. This was a memory verse for me when I first became a Christian. Do you remember those days? Uh, Maybe they're still here. Maybe some of you are still memorizing scripture. But I I was reading this book that I was given uh, probably two years after I was baptized, and it's called The Pursuit of Holiness. And this guy talks about memorization of scriptures. And I'm going, "Ah, I had heart surgery. (laughs) I have a memory problem. Can I just go by what I have? And I'm grateful that I memorized those verses when I could. 
Now, I still need to strive toward new stuff. But anyway, the point of it is, is that when I read this verse, it became a guide for my life. It helped me realize that being a faithful Christian is to not show up for worship on Sunday morning. It helped me realize that my relationship with God didn't stop there, but my relationship with God would be shown in my relationships with one another. What about that? You know, if you love me, if you love God, then you're going to love your brothers and sisters. But Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, there's a lot of things in this. He talks about our encouragement should be, should be in the process of becoming more than it used to be. Jesus is closer to coming back than he was yesterday. And he says all the more that we do these things as we wait for him to return. But what does he say? He says, let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and to good deeds. The Greek word for let us consider is literally premeditate. Now, what do you think of normally when we use the word premeditate? Murder. Murder. You know, it's on, all the, it's on all the channels. What is premeditated murder? It's to plan ahead how you will do it. <coughs> what the writer here is saying to the, the Hebrew Christians in order to help them remain faithful is you need each other and you need to engage yourself with other people. And he says in this particular, particular text, premeditate. Think ahead. Practical application, don't show up until you've thought about how you can provoke someone else, how you can encourage someone else. So it says, let us consider how we might encourage one another. And the word encourage there doesn't mean to compliment. What it literally means is to provoke. Now, what sentence do we use with the word provoke? You provoked me to anger. That's the most common uh, answer I get from people. But what does it mean to provoke? It means to stir up or to spur on like you spur a horse. That's the way it's used in this text. But the idea is, is show up to make a difference in the lives of other people. Don't just show up. Now, if that's where you're at, please, please, please show up so that someone else can provoke you <laughs> to loving good deeds. Wow. But, but what I want to get at here is this is not an observer religion. This is not a spectator sport. <coughs> this is a personal application, personal involvement, personal ownership, that who you are and how you behave toward one another will determine the culture of this church. If you're the person who shows up and you wait for people to encourage you, that might just begin to infiltrate the church. You know, in Lawrence, we try to create a culture that we really want people to imitate so that when they come in, they see it instead of they dilute it. Yeah. They become it instead of they criticize it. Yeah. And that's with people who place membership with us, and that's everyone who is baptized into Christ. We want a culture that can be, uh, that can be what the Bible describes when they interact with one another. I used to say to people when I preached there, I'm going to bring this around, I used to say at the end of the sermon, uh, I'm probably going to come around and ask you what you got out of my message. Now, I'm not asking you how I did with my presentation of my message. 
because I'm not up to that, but I'll try. But my point was not that you come and you observe as a spectator, but you come to become something, to be more than who you are. So here's an application. Number one, come to make a difference in the lives of other people, and don't leave until you've done it. If you premeditate, you'll be able to do it. If you just show up, it will be incredibly awkward. The second one is don't leave until you've talked to someone else about how you're going to apply what you heard. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. You've got to have a theologian to, make, to explain that one, right? <laughs> That's about as straightforward as it gets. But what I'm begging you to do is no matter how good or how off good the, the culture in the church is, is to create a healthy culture, to create a more healthy culture, to be the change agent, to be the person who said, I said I would follow Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. Don't leave today until you've critiqued my message. No, don't leave today. <laughs> until you've talked to someone else about what you can see that you can put into practice in your life. Next week when you show up, come prepared to provoke someone, premeditate how to provoke someone to love and good deeds. Let me end where I began. The call for this church and the church in Lawrence and the church everywhere around us is to imitate Jesus. Let's pray. Father, when we look at ourselves, we see how much we need you. Uh, God, we're strong in some of these things, and we're weak in some of these things. Please help us to see ourselves as you see us and not be overwhelmed. Uh, but give us that determination we had when we said that you will be Lord of our life and that we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Ken. Give him a round of applause.